welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're going to look at the Trinity today. Just a nice, light, airy subject. Um, I remember when Eric asked me, probably six weeks ago or more, if I would be willing to do a, a study on the Trinity or preach on the Trinity. And I said yes, because I had never done that before. And then as I sat back and thought about it, I got all intimidated because I thought, this is one of the most profound and mysterious doctrines in all of the Bible. And he just asked me to cover it and explain it in about 40 minutes. That's like uh, telling me, hey, um, why don't you go ahead and define the universe and give us three examples. So, but I am so glad. In fact, he tried to take it back to give me another subject. And I just, um, I was so in love with what God was doing in my heart with the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'm, I'm looking forward, I have been looking forward to today for the last few weeks. But I'll tell you, because it has enriched me so much, but I have felt like a parched, thirsty man on a hot, blistering day going up to get a drink from the fire hydrant. You know, it's like... (laughs) And some of it gets in my mouth and goes down my gullet, but a lot of it goes over my head and up my nose and stings and it hurts, and that's kind of the way it is when we study who God is. There's there's a certain certain overwhelming aspect to it. It's mind-bending, it's exhilarating, it's painful when it reveals our sin, it's comforting when we come to embrace the God who is ours. So it's mysterious in some ways. You know, we don't like that all the time. We, we don't like living with non-closure. We like to have everything cinched up and knowable. And, uh, you know, we, we're studying and then, ah, here comes that election thing. Or, ah, there goes that suffering thing. But it's all part of the wonder of God and we can't just fold them up and put them in our back pocket. He's, he's a big, big God. And I look forward to, with you all, pursuing the knowledge of God someday in heaven, in the Lord's presence, where I believe we'll have a, a sense of the passage of time and ages, and we will forever be blown away age after age after age after age by the amazing uh, knowledge and beauty of God, never exhausting his glory, always hungry and always being satisfied. I think the, the kingdom of God, the presence of God, will be a lot like a, you know, everlasting gobstopper, um, except we won't be, you know, tasting a thing, we'll be savoring a person for all time. Forever hungry, forever Satisfied, And today, we are being invited by the Holy Spirit to take a taste of the great glory of the Trinity. And it's, it is revealed to us in Scripture. We won't come to a, a very big knowledge of the Trinity, but I'm hoping by the end of our time we'll know God more fully. So I invite you to echo the, the voice of David, the words of David in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Taste it. Taste it. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would open our eyes 
to see great things in your law, to gain a greater appreciation for your great majesty, your awesomeness, and to fall down and worship you. Lord, inform our prayer, inform our worship, and give us great joy in this short journey today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is exactly the doctrine of the Trinity? The first thing I need to say is that the doctrine of the Trinity is not taught like in, in one passage or in one book where it says, behold, the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. Uh, but rather, the reality of the Trinity is a construct of the biblical evidence. When we call the pages of Scripture, we see the Trinity. And we basically see three things. These are the three things, the sum of what the Bible teaches us about the Trinity. And this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a, a, a synthesis of the biblical evidence for each of these points. We will be skimming, and that really is the oper operative word. We will skim the biblical evidence for these three points. One, the Bible teaches us that God is three distinct persons. Two, that each person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, is fully God. And three, that there is only one God. Okay, now let's look at that first point, that, that God is three distinct persons. The Bible speaks to us of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit as distinct persons. And there have been people around the church, guys, that from almost the beginning, especially since the early 4th century, have denied the distinction between the persons of the Trinity. Even though there is absolute clear evidence that the Trinity is a reality. As I said, when we call the Scriptures, we can't help but see the Trinity. We have passages, for example, where the Trinity appears together at the same time, in the same place, but each of them distinct from the other and doing their distinct ministries. You have a couple of events, for example, surrounding the Lord's life, the Lord Jesus, the beginning of his ministry as well as the end of his ministry. In the beginning of his ministry, where did Jesus begin his ministry? At what point? Is it the baptism of John, right? This is a big event in the outrolling of redemptive history. God had been promising since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned that he would send a Savior. And now at last the Savior had come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was beginning his messianic mission. And so what we have is the Son being baptized, the Spirit attesting, giving an anointing to the, to the Son of God for his ministry, and then the Father attesting to the pleasure that he has in his Son. And that's found in Mark 10 and 11. If you've got your Bible, please turn there real quickly. You might want to keep your thumb there because we'll come visit this again. But it reads like this, immediately, coming up out of the water, this is Jesus, he's being submerged by John the Baptist, coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him to anoint him, and a voice coming, up, coming out of heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Clearly, the persons of the Trinity, each one is identified together yet ministering separately. This passage would make no sense without the, the reality of the Trinity, wouldn't it? And while that scene opens up the Lord's ministry, at the end of the Lord's ministry, 
after he had accomplished redemption, after he had died a real death as a result of bearing our sin before God, he was buried, rose again, before ascending to the right hand of the Father, which again proves a distinction, right? He uh, got his men together and basically commissioned to take the good news of the gospel around the world. Matthew 28, 19 is a specific verse I want to draw your attention to. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, each member of the Trinity is identified by itself, by himself. And I want to point something out that may slip your, your notice, but notice the definite article in front of each of those nouns, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes that's provided for us in English to make it sound smoother, but it's there in the Greek. And in the Greek, the most definitive way to identify designation, identity, is with a definite article. So this is a very, very strong statement. The Trinity is clearly taught in those two bookend examples. But the person of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, are also revealed throughout the pages of the New Testament as they work together to bless believers, to equip believers, to save believers. And one of my favorite uh, passages, and don't turn there, but I want you to make note of it, it's Ephesians chapter 1. Here we see the collaboration of all three members of the Godhead working together for our redemption, our salvation. And I want to give you a homework assignment. Sometime this week, I want you to take a pencil or a pen and read Ephesians chapter 1, just the first chapter, and circle or underline and then write where you see each person of the Trinity involved specifically in your redemption. It's a striking view of the, of the Trinity, really. There we see the Father planning a redemption, lovingly choosing us before the, the, the creation of time and space in, in eternity past to strike up a plan, to develop a plan to adopt us as sons and daughters. Literally, that took place before time. That took place in the timelessness of God in eternity past. And that, you know, this message on several levels kept blowing my circuits a little bit. I'm surprised I didn't have a stroke or something like that because I was so blown away. And I, and I parked on this for a little bit and I thought, wow, God planned for my adoption from the days of eternity. That's pretty wild. And I thought, you know, God is omniscient, correct? You know what omniscience is, right? It means he knows everything. He knows every detail about everything. He knows the complexities of the subatomic world. We're trying to, to measure the, the universe. We're trying to send our Hubble, our little telescopes out there to take pictures of the recesses of space, the dark places, and focus out to see where we can find more stars. We can't even see the stars. We can't even count the stars. God says in Psalm 147.4 that he numbers them and he calls them all by name. He knows everything. So in his omniscience, God has always known that he was going to save you. He is also eternal. So he has known this from eternity past. You have always been on the mind of God. 
And then the Father brings about this great plan. He brings it to fruition. He brings it to bear in actual time and space through the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the one actuating the plan, realizing the plan, implementing the plan is the person of the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ, who convicts us of sin, who exalts Jesus in our eyes, who engenders belief, and then he is given to us as a seal, as a pledge of our future inheritance in Jesus. Guys, you need to breathe that in. Because this is not just a theological abstract. This is reality. I mean, the eternal Father was thinking about you, was thinking about me before the creation of the material universe, before the creation of time and space. The Father was constructing a plan to adopt us. And then he provides for that objective, not just by any means, but by the only means possible. And it is a plan of immense and epic and cosmic cost. It involved the coming of his son, the second person of the Trinity, injecting himself into the stream of human history and dying on a criminal's cross to save you and I. It's amazing. And then what's more, God moves heaven and earth. He directs history. He directs your ancestry to bring you to a place where you, your life physically is created in the womb of your mother. And listen to me. Just the odds of you being born who you are are so astronomically remote that it is almost impossible. And yet here you are. God has brought that to pass and he has brought, directs all of this to bring about your eternal salvation, the salvation of your soul by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. Guys, are you feeling insignificant? Are you feeling alone? Are you feeling unloved? How about starting with the fact that you are significant to the triune God and that each member Each person of the Trinity, the distinct persons of the Trinity, are deeply invested in your salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a thought. You know, there's an error called modalism, and it's been around for a very long time. It appears and manifests itself in many ways and gets tweaked here and there, but it basically adds up to the same thing. It's a denial of the distinction between the persons of the Trinity, it's basically a denial of the God of the Bible. This thinking says that the persons of the Trinity can be explained away because they're not really persons, rather they're masks that God wears. Sometimes he put, God puts on a mask and he appears as a father. He takes off that mask and then he puts on another mask and appears as the son and yet again he can manifest himself when he wishes as the Holy Spirit. But that truth attacks the distinctions between the persons. They're saying they don't exist. In fact, that's a denial of the person of the Holy Spirit, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a denial of God. It's a denial of God the Father because he's an illusion as well. And modalism makes hash out of all those Trinitarian passages that we just made reference to and many, many others. And it has tried to worm itself in into the church for as long as the church has been around. 
And we need to be careful because modalism, I say to you as lovingly as a shepherd, modalism is something that can invade and infect our own thinking and our own language. Uh, one example is I, I will sometimes hear Christians pray and they are thanking God for salvation, which is good. And then the person will say something to the effect of, thank you, Father, for dying for us. And first of all, I believe that's an innocent mistake. But the bottom line, guys, is that it's not true. And it's a form of, of modalism. The Father did not die for us. He, he what? He sent his Son to die in our place so that he might bear our sin be killed, be buried, rise again, and ascend to the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel. The Father dying for us is not the gospel. That's getting the gospel wrong. And there's a world of difference between those two things. It's important to comprehend that within the indivisibility of God, there's also a distinction between the persons of the Trinity, and we have to guard against that error in our thinking. So. We're clear, right? Each person of the Trinity is a distinct person. Another teaching that's very clear regarding the Trinity is our second point, and that is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. Now, this does not mean that the Godhead is divided deity. Some people wrongly think of the Trinity as a circle or a pie that you divide into thirds, and that each person of the Trinity is like makes up one-third of deity. That's, that's not true. Each person of the Godhead is 100% fully God. Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. Okay? And Matt Perman writes this. He writes, he's an editor for DesiringGod.org, John Piper's ministry. He says, they... The persons of the Godhead are all identical in attributes. They are equal in power, love, mercy, justice, holiness, knowledge, and all other qualities. Each person is 100% God. Now, I want to look at the biblical evidence for each person being God. Let's, let us do the easy one first, right? Everybody agrees that God the Father is God, right? Pretty much? If you don't, we need to talk afterwards, but... We see this from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1-1, the creation of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1, the New Testament reaffirms that. It says, God who created all things, Ephesians 3-9. And as God, he is also the sovereign ruler of all the universe. That's what his job is, as God. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 103, verse 19. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And that's a good verse to remember each four years during election cycles. Okay? Remember this. Next time your guy, your gal doesn't win, who sits in the heavens ruling over all? God does. We don't need to panic. Paul talks this way about the deity of God the Father. And by the way, these two verses... They're found in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.17 and chapter 6, verse 15. I also like to use with my Mormon friends and the dear people that I cross my path that are of Mormon belief because they tell me that 
They believe that, for example, God was once a man. That through his good works and godliness achieved godhood and was rewarded with his own planet and a harem of wives and he's populating these planets. Brigham Young went so far as to describe God as about six feet tall and 180 pounds. So I take issue with that partly because of these two verses. 1 Timothy 1.17 in this doxology where Paul speaks so beautifully about God the Father and his deity, we read this, now to the king eternal, there's only one eternal one, immortal, invisible, he's not six feet tall, about 180 pounds, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. And in chapter six, verse, verse 15, we read, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, there aren't thousands of them, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. God the Father is clearly God, right? God the Son is also fully God. This is something we need to have a handle on too. The Son of God is fully God. And I'm sure you went over this to some degree. I haven't had the chance to listen to last week's sermon with Eric. I believe he talked about the person of Christ, right? The hypostatic union, etc. Arianism still plagues humanity. It claims millions upon millions of souls every year. And that was an error probably started by the guy it was named after, Arius. He's the guy that certainly was a chief proponent of Arianism. And he was a, a deacon in Alexandria, Egypt in the early 4th century. And the basic upshot of his error was that he denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He also denied the deity of the Holy Spirit, by the way. He believed that both the Spirit and the Son were created beings, they were creatures. And this was biblically kiboshed in the Nicene Council, Nicaea of 325, but sadly, it still lives on in every major cult in the world, at least. In fact, I can't think of one cult that does not have an unorthodox, errant view of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the biblical evidence for the deity of Christ, guys, abounds. It is so clear. And you say, well, if it is so clear, then why do so many people deny the deity of Jesus? And I'll tell you why. Because the deity of Jesus is at the center of the gospel. You take away the deity of Jesus and you have no gospel. Because only infinite God could bear the sin of his people and the wrath of God the Father for their sin infinitely on the cross. No creature could do that. Psalm 49, 7 and 8 reads like this. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, a payment for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Doesn't leave the door open, does it? Creatures cannot redeem creatures. If you don't have the deity of Jesus, you have no gospel. And if Satan can get people to reject the Jesus of the, of the gospel, they will perish. 
And he is a crafty, very cunning liar, right? And he's been at his craft for millennia. Jesus said this about the devil. He said he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil can take a clear truth in the Bible, twist it so that people embrace it and write it straight to hell, guys. Without the deity of Jesus, we have no gospel. But the Bible as a document is full of the evidence of the deity of Christ from the Old Testament onward. In fact, the prophecies regarding the Messiah made it clear that when the Messiah that came, the deliverer, the redeemer that came would be fully God. Listen to this promise that we sing about every Christmas season, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And here Isaiah is speaking to the nation of, of Israel, the Jews, promising that the deliverer who would come through the avenue of the Jewish people from there would be a blessing to the world. But it, it reads like this. You know these words. Isaiah says, he sings, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to be a king but not just any kind of ruler. Listen to his titles. And his name shall be called Wonderful. That literally means ineffable, incomprehensible, wondrous, supernatural, miraculous counselor. The coming redeemer would be a supernatural counselor. And then it says, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Clearly those titles in the ministry of the son who would be given point to the, the reality that the coming deliverer would be eternal God, mighty God himself. The prophet Micah, 700 years before Jesus was born, and by the way, the New Testament clearly appoints or affirms that the coming Messiah was Jesus. 700 years before he was born, Micah said this to his people, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're just a wide spot on the road. But from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. He would be a ruler. But listen, what kind of ruler? His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, the Redeemer would be eternally existent. There's only one who is eternally existent. His name is I am. He is eternal, the eternal self-existent one. And Jesus is that I am. And of course, the New Testament picks up this thing very much all over the place. From Let me just give you a couple of examples, but from the very first verse of John's gospel, right? John 1, 1. John writes, in the beginning, the beginning of time, space, creation, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is his designation for Jesus. It has to do with his revealing God. In the beginning was the Word. That's just the simple verb to be, which in the present tense is I am. But this, this verb is in the imperfect tense. All that that means is that that's linear time in the past. So when time began, the Word already was. 
And he was with what? And the word was with God. He was eternally existent with the Father. And then he says, and the word was God. Equal, essentially the same. Not essentially, but in essence the same as God the Father. John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus claimed to be God, right? In this very gospel, in chapter 10, verse 30, he told the religious leaders after doing many miracles, he said, I and the Father are what? Are one. One in essence. One in being. Jesus said, I am equal to the Father. And you say, well, are you infusing that into the text? Or did the people understand that that's what he was claiming? What did the religious leaders do? They wanted to kill him. They picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, I showed you many good works from my father. For which one of them are you killing me? And they said, for a good work we do not kill you, but for heresy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. He clearly claimed it. Jesus is the eternal God. In fact, this is the very reason why John wrote his gospel, isn't it? At the end, towards the end of his book, in chapter 20, verse 31, the evangelist says, but these have been written, the gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, a reference to his deity, and that believing you may have life in his name, which, by the way, is another reference to his deity, because only God can give eternal life. John says, you want eternal life? Believe in Jesus, he'll give it to you. The epistles, the letters to the churches and to pastors in Colossians 2.9, Paul says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Is there anything more than all the fullness of deity in bodily form? No. Paul is saying, deity in its completeness and its fullness dwells in Jesus because he is God. And so Paul hitches up our eternal hope to his deity. In Titus 2.13, he says, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's abundantly clear that the Son is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. You say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, clearly the Spirit, first, let me just say that he's a person. We all agree on that, right? Because some people think he's a force like an energy field or something. But he is a person. He speaks, he teaches, he leads, he feels, he can be grieved, right? He intercedes, that is, he prays for us, Romans 8, 26 and 27. He is a person, but is he God? And the scriptures declare unequivocally that he is. I wish I had time to read the whole event with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Did you guys ever hear about that? These are two people that sold a piece of property to give the money, the proceeds to the church, and they claimed that they were giving all of the money to the church, but they kept some of it. They could have kept it all. That wasn't a problem. It was a lie that they were trying to perpetrate to get the approval of men. So they, they lied to the church, to the apostles, about the money that they were given, and God executed them. Don't worry, we don't practice that here, uh, as far as I can tell. That's why maybe we move the box to the back of the building that would avoid some deaths. No, but God was making a point. I'll be happy to talk to you about what, why he did what he did at the very beginning there. But 
in confronting, Peter confronting Ananias, he confronted his wife a few hours after this, but in confronting Ananias, he says some very interesting things about the Holy Spirit. Peter said, this is chapter 5, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now that tells us that he's a person, right? You, you don't lie to a wall. You don't lie to a tree. It's like, why didn't you, why'd you lie to that tree? Why don't you confess your sin to that tree and leaf? Ah. Uh, um, right? You lie to a person. He says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit and to keep some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You, could have, you didn't have to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You could have given a portion. You could have given a fraction. You could have given all of it, but you chose to give some of it and claim that it was all. And then he says this. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The person of the Holy Spirit is God. And we can see his divinity inferred in so many passages. In fact, guys, I would really challenge you to go back and look at uh, Mark, the baptism of Jesus, and also the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 in particular. Because in both of those passages, the Holy Spirit is classified on the same level as the Father and the Son. And since the Bible clearly teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, then the Holy Spirit must be God too, right? So, but it doesn't say that specifically. But think of how crazy it would be in that Trinitarian designation to include the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit were a creature. Listen to this. Wayne Gruden nails it right on the head. This is ludicrous. He says, how unthinkable it would have been for Jesus to say something like, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Archangel Michael. This would give a, to a created being a status entirely inappropriate, even for an archangel, which are the princes, the, the rulers of angels. And angels are pretty impressive. Remember, I preached here a few weeks ago, and I made reference to what the apostles John saw in chapter 19 and 22 of Revelation. He sees this angel, and he's a mature man. He's 93, 94 years old. He's been a Christian for over 30 years. He's been an apostle for all that time. He's been the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He's a mature man. He's written, God has used him to write scripture. But when he sees angels, he's so overwhelmed by their majesty, by their presence, by their beauty, by their glory, that he drops down on both knees and he begins to worship them. And what do the angels do? They said, do not do that. We're just fellow servants. Worship God. The point being is this. The Bible prohibits the exaltation of creatures to the level of God. And yet, we find the Holy Spirit elevated to the same level as the Father and the Son in Mark 10 and Matthew 28. And there are other Trinitarian passages where all three members of the Trinity are working together for our good. We we mentioned one, Ephesians 1. You can look at that this week. But let me give you a grocery list of these passages where the Spirit, the Father, and the Son are working together for our good, and they're viewed as equals. 
For example, they, they work together to equip believers, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, to bless believers, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, to unite believers, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, to sanctify believers, 1 Peter 1, 2, to keep believers, Jude verses 20 and 21. The Holy Spirit is recognizing those passages as having equal status with the Father and the Son. The scriptures also assign omnipresence to the Holy Spirit. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10, Psalm of David. Omniscience is attributed to the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 40 verses 13 and 14 and in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. And of course, omnipotence is also attributed to the Holy Spirit. You can see it everywhere from the beginning at creation, Genesis 1-2, to the deliverance of God's people Israel, especially in the judges, to the giving of life in the New Testament in John chapter 3, 5, and 7, and also 1 John 3-9. The full divinity of the Holy Spirit, listen, we can't get away from it, and nor would we want to. So we have established two clear biblical conclusions regarding the Trinity. The first is that all three persons of the Trinity are distinct from one another. They're distinct persons. Secondly, each person is fully God. But if that's where the Bible stopped, we would have to conclude what, guys? That there are three equal gods, right? But that's tritheism, maybe even polytheism. The Bible teaches us also, and this is our third point, that there is one God. Well, you say, well, they're one in purpose, they're one in ministry, they're one in thinking, but that doesn't go far enough because the Bible teaches us that the three distinct persons of the Trinity are also one being, one in essential nature. That's what that means. This is, of course, uh, demonstrated in the great uh, central statement of faith, of the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, especially verse 4, where we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is what? One. And it's really interesting because um, the word Lord is Yahweh. The word God is the word Elohim. And God says through Moses that the Lord is one, and yet he uses the name Elohim, which is in the plural. And some people have said, oh, well, that's just the plural of majesty. That's the way, like, kings and queens talk. We are so happy to that you are with us today. Uh, something like that. Do they use the plural we? That may be true in Western culture, but it is never true in Hebrew literature. So that doesn't prove the Trinity, by the way, but it certainly makes allowances for it, doesn't it? God who is one is also plural. But here, I want you to see the oneness of God. In Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7, the Lord says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And he wants men everywhere to know, from the rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And the New Testament unapologetically picks up this, this truth as well. Speaking of the sanctification or the salvation of Jews and Gentiles, Paul says in Romans 3.30, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And then in a very interesting verse, 1 Corinthians 8.6, we have Paul telling us that the Father and the Son are equal, and yet he turns around and says, but there's only one God, one Lord. 
Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is but one God. And by the way, the words God and Lord here are interchangeable. They're the same thing. But there is one God, deity, the Father, and one Lord, deity, Jesus Christ. In other words, both the Father and the Son are equally God, and yet there is only one God, one Lord. So real quickly, let's just, and we're, we're getting close to being done here, so hang in there with me. Uh, let's just do the divine math. Each person of the Trinity is a distinct person. Each is equally God. Because it's equally clear that there's only one God, all three persons are therefore the same God. And let me just take you to one verse that we've already looked at, Matthew 28, 19. I just want to show you something because it kind of ties things up a little bit here. And this is a principle that I noticed in verse 19, and I got really excited about it, and then I realized that I hadn't read it anywhere else in literature. And then I thought to myself, if I come up with a new theological point that has been missed by the great divines of the last 2,000 years, I'm probably wrong. But then I ran into it in uh, John Piper's blog, and it got me really excited. But Matthew 28, 19, this is a, uh, really a summary of every point we've made. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that teaches the distinctions between the persons that teaches that they're all equally God because they're named, uh, put on the same level. But also, excuse me, I want you to notice that while the persons are distinct and divine, that we are baptized into their what? Into their name, singular. We are not baptized into their names, plural. Why? Because while distinct and divine, they constitute only one name. Matt Perman says this can only be if they are one essence. Now, guys, I'm not claiming to understand this. I'm just telling you what the scripture tells us to believe. And Val is my witness that many times I came out of my office studying for this message over the last few weeks. And two times in particular, I remember coming out going, my brain hurts. That's exactly the way I said it. My brain hurts. It'll have to come out then, Mr. Gumpy. <laughs> Only bits of it. Um, you know what this experience, part of what it taught me is, it, yet again, is that God is God and I am not. And I can understand a lot of stuff. I mean, I... There's a lot of stuff that's a mystery to me. I don't know a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I don't even know how fish work, okay? But I can pick up a book, and in about 40 minutes, I can tell you why fish do what they do. But there are some things about God that I just cannot explain. He is knowable, but incomprehensible, as Eric reminded us. But what I love is the fact that God does not withhold this truth from us. He doesn't say, oh, they just can't handle this. Their noodles are too little. You know, I'm going to wait till they get to heaven, and then I'm going to unveil it, and that way they'll get a lot less frustrated. But that Marcel, I'm going to fry his noodle if I show him this. God presents it unapologetically. The Trinity in its great mystery is taught in a forthright manner. It is for our good, right? 
And God must want us to muse it, to ponder it, to think about it, to talk about it, to teach it, and most importantly, to believe it. To believe it. I think the right tone is struck up by the Belgic Confession where it reads, in all these passages, passages about the Trinity, we are fully taught that there are three persons in the one and only divine essence. And although this doctrine surpasses human understanding, <laughs> yeah, we nevertheless believe it now through the word. I love that. We believe it now through the word, waiting to know and enjoy it fully in heaven. And I don't know if we'll ever know it fully, but more fully for sure. Because I don't know where C.S. Lewis said this. I, I've never found it, but it's attributed to him. He said that the first two words we'll say when we get to heaven will be, of course. Probably preceded by a, oh. It's true. Is believing in the Trinity important? Is God important? This is our God, whom the Spirit reveals to us. And let me say this very carefully, but it's very important. Since the Bible reveals God as triune, to reject the Trinity is to reject the God of the Bible. To embrace a little g God that makes us feel more comfortable and makes more sense to us, but that clearly contradicts the teaching of Scripture is like what Eric said, creating a God by our own vain imagination. And that is no God at all. Because false gods, idols like that, cannot deliver in the short or long term. God is three in person, one in essence. Those who reject the Trinity do so because of Arianism or modalism, some form of it. And that's very serious. If you deny the Trinity, you strike at the heart of the gospel. We've already talked about that because you eliminate the God-man, Jesus Christ. If you deny the Trinity, you start, strike at the heart of prayer. Do you realize the millions of people today alone, this morning, around the world that have offered up millions of prayers to God through Jesus by the Spirit? Only God can intercede like that. The Holy Spirit, who, who knows the mind of God, who searches all things, he's omniscient, can take our prayers and with groanings too deep for words, Romans 8, cry them out to the Father. No creature can do that. You deny the Trinity, you strike at the heart of worship also. Are you going to worship a non-person? An, an illusion? Or if, you're, if you believe in Arianism, are you going to worship a creature? The Bible prohibits that. Ask John. Well, that, my friends, is simply stated, very simply stated, the doctrine of the Trinity. But let me just remind you of one last thing, and we'll end with this very quickly. And that's found in Deuteronomy 6.4 where we learn about the oneness of God. And that is this. Hear, O Israel. One little possessive pronoun. The Lord is what? Our God. This applies to all believers across the centuries. This great, big, awesome, transcending sovereign of the universe is our God. Remember what Jesus promised the disciples in John 14? Before he left, he said, I'm going to send you the Spirit who abides with you, but will be what? In you. And then in, in that same chapter, in verse 23, 
Jesus extends the promise. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, the father and the son, will come to him and make our abode with him. Now every believer, the humblest believer, is the resident housing temple of the triune God. And the New Testament expands this as well. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the same reality in, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, says, For we are the temple of the living God. That's exactly what Jesus promised, right? And Jesus was, was speaking in Trinitarian terms. Paul is speaking of the one living God. And he says this, Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Do you realize that God is in our midst? That like the lamb in the book of Revelation going through the churches, he is in our midst walking about. I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God. He's our God. And they shall be my people. God who is three in person and one in essence belongs to us. And we belong to him. What, what are the challenges you're facing today? in your life right now? Is there anything bigger, more powerful, more lovely in scope and awesome in scope than the one true and living God, the triune God, who lives in you? No. And now this great God invites us to his table. Let me pray and then we'll introduce the elements real quick. Heavenly Father, Thank you for revealing to us who you are. Lord, we have to admit that we're just filling up a little cup in the great ocean of your knowledge. But we are invited to drink freely. Thank you, our God, for sending us this revelation of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We love you. Help us to worship you with all our hearts as we partake of these elements now at the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, guys, there was a time when we were, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, at enmity with God. We were his enemies. We were sinners. In fact, we were at war. God was at war with us. And through the cross, the peace of his cross, he has removed all that enmity away. And now he invites us as children, adopted children, to participate in this memorial feast. The bread, which is gluten-free, so don't let that hold you back, please, is symbolic of the Lord's body that was broken and crushed for our sins. The cup is symbolic of his blood, which was shed for the remission of sins. Come and take and celebrate the Lord with me. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.